Welcome to Shit Happens Now What? This is the podcast where we talk about all of the things that life throws in your path and how to deal with them in a positive way. Um, I'm your host, Amelia, as always. And on this episode, we're talking about the importance of storytelling. What does storytelling allow us to express? And why is it so important to share our stories? Why are we called to do that? Uh, My guest this week is Dr. Katie Zimelzak. Katie holds two master's degrees and a PhD in English literature. She's been teaching and tutoring composition and literary analysis to students from elementary through college since the year 2000. And she currently teaches world and British literature at a private school in Florida. I'm super excited to talk to you about this topic. And I really can't think of any anyone more qualified. So uh, thank you for being here. Of course, I'm excited to be here. So if I can start with a kind of broad philosophical question, uh, what made you fall in love with storytelling? Um, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I don't know if it was a specific bedtime story or some kind of movie or television show. Um, There had to have been something when I was a kid that I just... I could not get enough of my parents reading stories to me. Um, There's one that I'm thinking of in particular that I couldn't tell you who wrote it or what book it was even in. Um, But it was this weird story of these like multicolored fairies. There was like a green and a blue. There were all the colors of the rainbow fairies and they were, they had to fight like the evil fairy who didn't, want to be part of their their like spectrum of fairies Uh, which as I think about it now is like this um except for the fact that it was probably like the black fairy that was the bad fairy um I I did however really like this sort of like queer underpinning of like it's all those different colors of 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 fairies that are um the spectrum of fairies that are kind of flitting around trying to help each other um Mm. but yeah it was just this weird little like kids book and I don't know if it was even like particularly popular or anything like that but yeah I was trying to think if I had read it as a kid and it doesn't sound familiar to me but it does sound like something that I would have gobbled up as a kid as well but it, it on the one hand it doesn't sound familiar but it also does like it's it yeah it's a similar kind of story to so many other um pieces that we have that sort of float around in the children's world um mm. yeah all of the books that i loved as a kid are super depressing like the giving tree and uh-huh. um what's the other one it's uh uh it's the one uh where the the kid is being raised and then the mom grows old and then the adult takes care of the kid. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby you'll be. Do you know what I'm talking yes. about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I can't remember the name of it, but, uh, the, but those two stories I, I read over and over and over and they both <laughs> involve like death and taking people for granted. <laughs> so yeah, um, I don't know. I think that's interesting. <laughs> Even as a young kid, you can kind of relate to that stuff. So as someone who teaches, um, you know, composition, and you deal with uh, storytellers and stories all the time, why do you think that people love to tell stories and to hear stories? Um, I think that aside from 
for the for the purpose of telling stories, I just there's I would hope there's a two pronged thing to it. But my most simple answer would be like people love to be. I, I, the depressing, like selfish side is they love to hear their own voices, but I guess the more mm-hmm. altruistic side of that is they love to be heard. People love to be heard, um, and they want to uh, they want to get their side of things out. Um, they want to know that um, whether it's a true story or or a fictional story or even just like a basic joke, um, mm-hmm. there is there's something that makes everybody just sort of like shut up and listen, which I guess, I mean, maybe I need to be better at telling stories in my classroom because it's gotten to that time of year where the kids do sometimes just need to shut up and listen. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> the seniors, especially, oh boy. Um, yeah. Cause they're all raring to get out of there, huh? They are, they're getting their acceptance letters and they're just, they're ready to be done. Um, yeah. But they do like, I'll, I'll kind of like bribe them and I'll tell them like, we can talk about sluts for a minute and then I'll tell them the history of the word slut, which was like the whole focus of my PhD. And they get really interested when I try to make it like a, a weird sexy topic that isn't something that they're used to hearing that kind of story or that sort of, uh, history, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah. well, and I think too, that a lot of the existing stories kind of follow, a familiar narrative. So when you can tell a story that kind of defies expectations that that's somehow more exciting. Um, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So do you have a a favorite genre of stories? Are there stories that you come back to time and time again? And do they have anything in common with other stories that you love? Uh, for genre, I don't really know. I do love, just like SF genre, like speculative fiction and sci-fi, which is a super nerdy, like, but if it's done well, it becomes just everything that I, I did fall in love with about storytelling as a kid, that this is all something that someone invented and that anything can happen in fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, uh, I do, I do love speculative stuff. Um, I really like, but then on the other hand, I've, I've lately gotten into some like really trashy romance novels, which of course always follow the same like track of they meet, they fall in love. They like do it a couple times along the way. Cause that's really fun. And then, like <laughs> at the end, they probably get married. Um, but it's, it's this sort of predicted, um, narrative arc of a romance novel. That's but sometimes those, those like, um, uh, repetitive or not repetitive, but familiar yes. stories can be a good way, like trash TV to just turn your brain off. Yeah. Right. And you don't have to think too hard about it. Um, so what, what do you think makes a great story? Uh, what I think it makes a great story is... I don't know. I feel like it has to, there's some moment of like, you fall out of time when you're reading it, which I, that sounds like a super speculative fiction, science fiction way of answering that question. No, but I love that. But I've, and I've told this to my students, I think especially this second semester, 
I'm getting into a little more like pointed the whole arc of my my year with my sophomores especially because I've, those are most of the students I think I've got like a hundred sophomores that I teach or sophomore level students I shouldn't say sophomores because there are definitely some juniors and seniors in that class um, but the sophomore level English two level uh, we end the first semester with Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart which is such a good novel and it's got this, and, and it has those moments of familiarity, but it takes you a long time to get to that. And it has those moments of unfamiliarity that I kind of try to walk them through, like, this is a different history of storytelling that these people live in. Like, this is a decidedly African novel, mm. and he's getting us to this by this sort of, like, roundabout storyteller way. And now... And they're like, oh, okay, yeah. So it doesn't follow this very sort of like opening exposition, conflict, uh, acceleration, rising action, climax, denouement structure that we've become very familiar with. It doesn't really have that. Um, so it takes us out of that familiar moment. But there are also these moments in that novel where it does sort of drop out of time and the characters just sort of go off on these little tangents about like the folk tale of the bird uh, and the turtle, like the turtle tricking the bird. And mm. the kids really like that. And they're like, I really enjoyed that story, but that was like really random. And I have no idea what it has to do with the rest of the book. Like they get really caught up in that folk tale. And they're like, well, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Maybe part of it is you don't know what it has to do with the rest of the book. And maybe part of it is it takes you out of that moment for a minute, which a story is kind of supposed to do. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about this in the context of kind of our political climate in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think to some degree storytelling is kind of a responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think that storytelling establishes the narratives kind of of what's good and what's bad in society. And a lot of times storytellers reflect, you know, morality in their works. Yeah. And so this is kind of a subjective question, but do you think that storytellers have a responsibility to, um, either shine a light on something or um, present identities in a way that are, I guess, not as othered. Uh, what I'm getting at is do, do storytellers have a responsibility to kind of write the world they want to see? Right. Either by presenting a better version or drawing attention to the, the negative um, yeah, I think that uh, this is specifically, and I was thinking of this as I was giving some of my answers, even um, about like the Black Fairy or um, this, uh, the standard arc of a romance novel, which is wildly heteronormative, right? or uh, the arc of science and speculative fiction, which does often borderline on this question of whether there is some sort of higher deity. Um, so a lot of those stories do fall into this very like westernized received notion of what is good allegedly and what is right allegedly. 
but I do think that there is, um, there is thankfully room in storytelling to have that other, other voices to have any other, um, version of here is the world that I live in. Here is the world that I want to see being told. Mm. Here is what happens when, for example, you exclude the perspective of, of someone in an LGBT or uh, someone in a different cultural background or someone from a different religious background. Um, mm-hmm. So it's definitely there. It's just a matter of, I think it's, it's hard work um, for me to find that and to uh, expose my students to that as much as possible, because I want them also to feel included. There's a lot of international students at my school. So mm-hmm. um, making sure that I'm not just teaching them things, especially in the world literature class, since it is world literature, not just teaching them things from a white male, cis, uh, et cetera, Western perspective. Right. Um, and even as it is world literature, it's like, well, I have to teach you in English because right. there's no assumption that we're all going to speak the same second or third language because many of them do speak two or three languages, but it's not always the same one. Mm. Um, so knowing that I'm bound to, uh, to English teaching, but at the same time that then we can talk about like translation. Mm -hmm. If some of them do speak the original language, I will bend the rules of our English only English classroom and say like, okay, well look at the original of this and, and see like what that translates to Um, or get, get another perspective or say like, where do you see yourself in this? Do you relate to it? Do you not? And, and sometimes they're really good and frank and honest about not seeing themselves in that. I'm like, okay, well, Mm. yeah, a lot of literature does do that, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think it's like kind of twofold. So on the one hand, you know, a storyteller is an artist and putting limitations on the kind of art that you can create kind of defies what it means to be an artist. I don't think that censoring art is you know, the way forward. On the other hand, it's like, as consumers or as, you know, people who consume art, then we make the distinction between what kinds of art we want to consume. So I could see it both ways as as the storyteller having a sense of responsibility to some degree and as the consumer of art to have a responsibility to either not subject yourself to things that might be damaging in the world or, you know, um, I think it's an interesting question, but one that I don't think can have like a straightforward answer, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. I think that's, it kind of comes to the point of, I had a huge dis- debate with uh, one of my college level classes about trigger warnings on syllabi. And I'm like, well, you know, there is, there is some onus definitely on the instructor to like let the students know, but there's also some onus on the students to look into like what subject this is and in literature, especially uh, even at the high school level, so many of my students just get like, this is so depressing. Oh my gosh. Why are you teaching us this? Like, why isn't there just a happy story? (laughs) And, And I try to think of one. I try to think of some story with a happy ending and I'm like, 
I just keep coming up blank. I'm like, well, these people were, they felt, and I think that's part of it. They felt the need to have their voice heard in a way that like that story wasn't being told. And that was super depressing to them. Mm. So in that way, I, I kind of fall down on the side of like, I don't really want to put a trigger warning directly on every syllabus mm-hmm. because of course you're going to run into something like that um, in, in difficult topics and a difficult course at the college level. But on the other hand, it's like, if it is a specific book that, or, or film or uh, work of art in any way that has charted history. Um, like, I don't know. I had a, uh, I had a colleague who taught Thelma and Louise and, mm. and very pointedly gave his issued his students a trigger warning for watching that film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't have any of those affiliated. And it's like, well, there's certain things for different people and there's only so many ways you can cover all of those. Um, like, do I put a trigger warning on the sign-up sheet to bring in snacks every week because someone might have issues with like food and emotional eating. Mm. And there's, and of course, if I do that, then I've missed somebody else's personal issue that they're, they're dealing with. Um, so yeah, there is something, there's something to the fact of like just literature generally being stories generally being kind of a way of negotiating this left outness mm. and this way of like trying to seek empathy with other people. Right. Um, but at the other, on the other hand, like sometimes not being able to find that. And that's why you had to write it to begin with. Right. Well, and the, like, that's a new discussion too, with uh, like trigger warnings and content warnings. That's something that I've only seen mm-hmm. in online spaces in the past, like maybe five or so years, maybe a little bit longer. Yeah. Do you think that there's a specific reason why we're seeing more of a empathetic kind of um, preemptive uh, warning about artistic content? Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen it on TV a lot longer, yes. like uh, warning audiences who might have children in the room or something. But in terms of um, in terms of like sharing for articles and things like that, what do you think made that become more to the forefront and and more widely used? Well, I think that that does have something to do with more people telling their stories and knowing that talking about a difficult subject could be something that a lot of people not just feel uncomfortable about, but like actually have post-traumatic stress responses to hearing something that reminds them of a particular traumatic experience. Um, I do, of course, like, and I made that distinction with my, my students with whom I had this debate that there's a difference between like, oh, this made me uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about race or sexuality or gender identity or those sorts of things. And I'm like, well, yes, there are uncomfortable things to talk about. But there's a difference between that and an actually like feeling triggered and having a physical, mental response to what's going on. Right. Um, I think that I, I would like to believe that our society is becoming, in a way, more empathetic and more understanding. And that's where that's coming from. Um, but 
there are certainly other parts of, of society that are not doing that. Um, I would, I would like to believe that the people who are, are making those moves towards empathy and inclusion are than the right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that as, like you said, more people are telling their stories and we have a more interconnected world and it's easier to share information between groups that might have been otherwise separated in society um, due to any number of distinctions and biases. So I think as you get more of those stories out there, you see like how they relate to you, how they don't relate to you, and you have different themes coming up. So I think it's a positive move, but I do see what you mean in terms of like, does everything need a trigger warning? And where do we draw the line between being sensitive and empathetic and, and, you know, right. So I think that's a, that's an interesting question too. Um, Is there a way that, well, and I think there is, uh, so this is a leading question just to warn you, but uh, is there a way that we can use storytelling to reshape how people understand certain issues we face in society? Like, can we bring people around to view an issue differently through the vehicle of storytelling? Yes. And I think that yes, uh, also, um, I think there is a way. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but I do okay, feel like good. We're on the same page. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I do feel like uh, including more of those voices and more of those stories. I made a I, part of my part of my New Year's resolution was to to do that for myself. Uh, expand my own version of the canon and start to read more literature by. Um, uh, people of color by people from uh, whatever gender excluded communities, gender uh, non-conforming or or queer writers uh, or trans writers, um, and I just I want and it's hard to find. It's it's bothering me at this point. I'm like I really want to keep this New Year's resolution, but I also. Like that's, that's part of what makes it a resolution, uh, I guess, is that it's, it's more difficult and the more easy it becomes to find those voices, the more, uh, the more willing those people are to tell their stories, the easier that becomes for people to accept that this is, these are real experiences. These are real lives of people. And of course they're not going anywhere and we're going to find more and more as, as that, as those voices expand, as that canon expands. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And, and hopefully that'll, that'll, that'll help how we understand those issues. Yeah. I, I would say to that, you know, to your point about the stories being difficult to find, I think that traditional publications, houses and traditional avenues of publication aren't always open to people who uh, face various levels of oppression. So I think a lot more people nowadays are self-publishing on various platforms. And um, I think that that's pretty empowering. And it's something that I would like to consume more of as well and like seek out voices that are going to tell stories that I won't be able to relate to because I want to learn more about other people's experiences and, and how they navigate the world. So I think that's important as well. I think um, I think too that 
there are stories that I've read that have certainly opened my mind to something happening in the world. Um, yeah. The first one that I can recall from a book that I read was um, Ayan Hirsi Ali's Infidel. And mm. that book opened my mind to the problem of female genital mutilation. Mm. Um, and it also started to open my mind into how people uh, have to navigate immigration and, and refugee status. Yeah. So that was something that my world had been close to before I read something like that. Um, so that's just one example, but I think there are definitely stories out there and we need more of them that can challenge your conceptions, yeah. uh, challenge your biases and make you kind of think about the world in a different way. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So um, at this point in the show, um, I think we're going to answer some listener questions. Are you ready for that? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, Our first question comes from Dylan. Dylan says, I'm a writer and my question is totally subjective, but I want your opinion anyway. I'm struggling with whether to write a memoir or fictionalize aspects of my life. Does the truth create a stronger story or does the freedom of fiction somehow allow one to be more honest? Hmm. I really like this question. Um, And of course my brain immediately goes to uh, James Frey and his, what was that million little tiny pieces or whatever that was called that his memoir was, had those fictionalized bits uh, and Oprah just like tore him to pieces tore him into a million tiny pieces. Um, (laughs) But I think like, as long as you're honest about what you're doing before you do it, I I like the idea that, and of course, I, I don't know. I think this is definitely like, this becomes a metaphysical question about the nature of truth. Yes. Um, And I've talked with some of my students about memory. I think my seniors, especially we talk about the nature of memory And one of my students had this, like, I, I think at least this real moment of connection with me when I talked about, like, I could map out the house that I lived in when I, uh, up that I lived in with my parents and my brother up until the point I was just, I think I had just turned two when we moved out of that house. So I know the whole floor plan. And he was like, yes, me too. I absolutely, I remember what my house looked like. Wow. That's really rare. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm like one of the smarty pants students in the back of the class was like, no, you have to talk to like our our psychology teacher who is also like crazy smart and she's awesome. And it's like, you don't actually start forming memories until you're like three. I was like, well, you just ruined it for both of us. But also like... No, not really, because I I did know that the way that we form memories has a lot to do with like stories that we receive from other people. Mm. So as far as I know, um, those that information about my house was something that either my parents had described to me, or I had looked at photographs of it, of the house, like after I had started forming more contiguous memories. Um, so it was, it's this weird sort of like way of saying that even like a real memory, right? truth has this element. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. And I remember 
I don't know. I remember seeing my brother running in and out of the room and like laughing at him wildly because he would entertain me when I was a baby. Um, but yeah, this is all this sort of roundabout way of saying that even truth has this element of fiction to it. Every truth has this element of fiction to it. How we want to tell our stories, how we want to remember things is always going to be inflected a little bit by, by something that would make the story better or something that would, uh, that would change, um, the way that other people hear it. Definitely. From my perspective, um, there are things that I think about that I want to write about eventually in my life. And I know the line at which I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing parts of it. So when I think about it, fiction sounds really nice because then some of those more outrageous things that I wouldn't necessarily want people to associate with me, I can throw onto my character and then I emerge unscathed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, uh, Dylan, I, I mean, I think both, both approaches are, are, are valid. It just depends on how you feel more comfortable as a writer. That's what I would say. Yeah. So our second question comes from Anonymous. Um, Anonymous says, Gloria Allred recently held a press conference, and one of the women who had previously accused uh, Donald Trump publicly of sexual harassment announced that she would be suing the president. At this point in time, he was the president-elect. When I was watching the live stream of the press conference, I was dismayed to see so many people saying they thought she was lying because she didn't report it right away. I'm frustrated by the way people dismiss women who don't come forward, but then immediately discredit any woman who does. What's the value of women sharing our stories of abuse and harassment? Uh, yeah, this is, this comes up whenever anyone is accused of sexual harassment or rape or like any other sexual misdeed. Um, And people ask, like, well, why was she waiting until now to tell her story? Why, why would she wait until now to tell her story? And my response to that is always like, yeah, exactly. Like, what is she gaining? What is she losing? Or what is she gaining by telling it now? And the answer is usually like nothing. Right. Like, there's no reason why, uh, aside from your, like, helping your own mental health right? that you would wait until however many years later that you're finally able to deal with that traumatic thing that happened to you. And there was a lot of people like, Oh, they're doing it for fame. People were saying this about Bill Cosby. Like all these women are coming out now because they're trying to like ride his coattails and become famous. And I'm like, he wasn't that famous at the, like he was still famous, but he wasn't particularly popular it wasn't like they came out in his heyday to accuse him of these things. So yeah, why would they wait until 10, 15, 20 years later? Right. When he's not someone who is anymore a huge like public figure with a popular television show. Right. Uh, with the president elect, people were saying like, oh, of course they're they're again, they're trying to get famous. They're trying to get publicity out of this. I'm like, why would they want that? 
why would they want to be famous for being raped or for being groped or for being harassed? Yeah. Is always my response to those questions. Like, yeah. And again, oh, if this is a moment where this person is finally coming to the front of like a huge political movement and is becoming the nominee for their political movement, well, maybe the reason that they're coming forward now is because they want to stop them from gaining any more power. Right. Um, I would hope that maybe had something to do with it. Um, And again, I can't speak for them, but that's how it seemed to me anyway. I get so frustrated by the conditions that people place upon uh, how you should report, when you should report, and all of the people who criticize those women or or and or men, you know, or gender nonconforming people who come forward to say that they've been assaulted or raped or harassed. Um, the people who criticize them don't seem to like have any sort of long-term memory. They don't seem to remember how other victims are treated when they come forward, that they're always subject to a ton of scrutiny. Um, I don't think that there's any uh, person who suffered a sexual assault in their right mind that would want the public to pick them apart, to evaluate uh, what they were wearing, what they were doing, who they were with, if they had been with this person Uh, consensually in the past, like no one wants to put themselves through that kind of public scrutiny because they're lying. And I need this lie of accusations hurting men to die in a horrible fire because there are abusers who have been able to maintain prominent positions in public life, in art, in politics with zero repercussions for their misdeeds. And often it's because they have enough money and power to silence their victims and to discredit their victims. So, I mean, for me personally, I bend towards believing people when they say that something happened to them. Um, As a, a sexual assault survivor myself, I feel very passionately about it. Um, And I would just really like that uh, catch-22, damned if she does, damned if she doesn't, crap to, like, be done with already. Like, it's old, it's played out, it doesn't add anything of value to the conversation, and it dehumanizes the people who are brave enough to come forward and stand up to, in some cases, very, very tall giants. Yeah. I think this really gets back to that earlier question about like having a responsibility in storytelling um, and having a sort of narrative that whether it's going to set the moral standard or uh, legitimize certain types of behaviors um, or certain types of relationships or certain types of actions, um, the more of those stories that we get out there the more we start to realize that this is definitely a pattern and whether that means that the pattern is women get attacked, women try to hide that they have been attacked or men or, or people, people get put through this ringer um, of, of assault, guilt, repercussions, trying to come forward about it and then being shamed and being discredited. If that is the narrative, the more that we recognize that that is the narrative, then maybe the more that we realize 
there's something seriously wrong with that. Right, right. If every person who comes forward saying, I have been assaulted, is then called a liar, like we know this is stuff that happens. As as survivors, we know that this is something that happens. Absolutely. So what what then becomes of, of that story? They can't all be liars. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Um, I just wanted to take a second to shout out a TV show that I think um, is dedicated to kind of retelling uh, this narrative and to frame um, f- to frame the issue of sexual assault from uh, from the victim standpoint in a really uh, respectful way. And that's, uh, it's actually an MTV show. It's called Sweet Vicious. And basically, it's about uh, two college students who become friends, and they team up to uh, become vigilantes that beat up rapists, because their campus like doesn't respond to Title IX accusations and stuff in in a in a in a good way, so they become like ass kicking vigilantes and beat up rapists and make them promise not to assault anyone. It's pretty cool. Uh, so our next question is from Michelle. Uh, Michelle says, "I have a perspective and identity that is rarely reflected back to me in the stories and media I consume." Some people have told me to create the stories I want to read or watch, so I'm thinking about giving it a try. What's the best way to try and share my story on my own? Oh, this is another really good question. Um, and I hate just giving the cop-out answer of just like, write, write, and write, and keep writing. Um, but really, do that. Like, write it. Tell the story. Um, whether that means like, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, Amelia, about people who are not, uh, being picked up at, uh, at sort of like a traditional publishing house who are self-publishing, if that means getting a blog set up for other people who might have, um, who might, uh, have experienced some of the same issues that you have, or uh, who might be. Uh, fitting into the same identity markers that that you also own, then do that. Set up a blog, set up a forum, uh, find some space. I think the world needs more of that, definitely. I don't know if there's any more like, specific advice that I can give than just like, write, tell your stories, write, tell your stories. I would absolutely read it. Yeah, no, I think that's really, that's really good advice. Um, The only other thing that I would add to it is just the importance. And I touched, I touched on this in a previous podcast episode. But I would say uh, to find a mentor, if you can at all, who either has a similar uh, identity to you, or is already writing in a space that you think you could fit in with. Um, I think mentors can have tremendous uh, abilities to not only validate and help us kind of cultivate our stories, but also to open doors and to help you make connections that you might not be able to make on your own. Yeah. So I, I, in addition to just writing and, and starting a blog and getting your stories out there, I would say to try and, identify a mentor and approach them um, to see if you can build a relationship because that 
often will open more doors for you as a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. Our last question comes from Linda. And Linda says, I'm looking for some fiction to read on an upcoming vacation. Can you recommend some books you love? And I'm up for any genre. So this is the fun part. We just get to shout out our favorite novels. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh, so many. Um, yeah, uh, for vacation, though, I'm like, I'm trying to narrow this down by way of like, vacation style stories, but also uh, like a vacation to wear and fiction, she said. Um, because obviously I'm gonna, I'm gonna shout out to, uh, La Via J. She said fiction and I don't know where she's going oh, okay. on vacation. <laughs> um, but fun vacation. That's always fun. Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm judging I'm you. I'm judging you. La Via is, yeah. Um, I also shout out to the other, uh, one of the other published authors that I, I know and have met, uh, Jill Alexander Esbaum's Housefrau, um, also, like, I think of these, Lovey's, I think, is maybe a little more um, uplifting as a read than Housefrau is. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think that uh, just uh, among the people that I know, uh, those two, because, of course, I'm going to shill for my, my people. Definitely. <laughs> But yeah, uh, on the on the topic of like memory and how we form memory, for memory, I really like uh, Carol Rivka Brunt's "Tell the Wolves I'm Home." Okay, uh, that one's about uh, a young woman who is uh, dealing with the loss of her her gay uncle uh, in the '80s in New York City. Um, so she's she's like forming her memories her the older version of herself is telling this story that the younger version of herself has had to come to grips with um i got really into um i don't know then i now i'm thinking of like vacation destinations and like edwidge Danticat would be really great uh she's she's haitian um so uh maybe not a a typical vacation destination, but like uh, something written that is, has a very West Indies uh, feel to it. Mm. Um, and she's fantastic. She's a really good storyteller. Um, or I don't know. I, I recently got really into her work. Um, yeah. I would recommend I'm trying to think of other ones now that aren't just like yeah canonical because yeah. the books that I <laughs> the books that I usually sorry the books that I usually recommend are like classical like standard canonical British literature and like nobody really wants to read those on vacation right because of course I'm like I love Jane Austen and and nobody's going to read Pride and Prejudice on <laughs> I don't think. Sitting on the beach, Pride yeah, and Prejudice, like sipping a margarita. <laughs> um, I would recommend uh, Mia McKenzie's The Summer We Got Free. That's a really beautiful uh, story about a family. I, I, I don't want to give too much away of the plot because it's um, it kind of leads you to the end of it. 
is the best way I can explain it, but it's very, very good. And I just recently <laughs> finished the third book in the Cormoran uh, Strike novels. So uh, those books are detective novels, and they were written by J.K. Rowling under a pseudonym. And there are three books in the series so far, but she has announced that she wants to do even more installations than Harry Potter had. So I think there's going to be at least seven or eight. And um, it's this kind of surly um, detective, private detective who used to be on the police force and he fought in Afghanistan and he lost a leg in an explosion. And um, he is trying to, you know, crack this very high profile murder and a temp agency accidentally sends him uh, a receptionist that he can't afford to pay, but they bond and become really interested in the cases. And so uh, they end up kind of becoming a dynamic duo. Like she's the Robin to his Batman and her name actually is Robin in the story as well. <laughs> so those are super fun. I would highly recommend them. Um, and other, other fun reads, these aren't fiction, but um, I, really enjoyed uh, Samantha B's book, I Know I Am, But What Are You? Yes. Um, that's all I can think of off the top of my head. Do you have any others, Katie? Um, yeah, I'm thinking Nina Ravoyer's Southland. I've read that so many times. Um, very Los Angeles, like, interconnected stories. Um, I'm also trying to think of like, what am I teaching my students? But I'm teaching them a lot of like short stuff. We're doing a lot of poetry um, and visual art. Um, and the seniors are about to do Animal Farm, which again, like a great vacation read, but, but always fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another like classic that I love that um, will be relevant within the next year or so because uh, Ava DuVernay is producing or she's, I think she's directing the upcoming remake or film adaptation of this book is a wrinkle in time. Nice, That's yes. one of my favorites from uh, my younger days. And I think it has uh, like a lot of revisibility. So uh, revisitability. I don't think that's a word, but we're going to roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so that's all the time we have this week for listener questions. Uh, send your questions to questions at shit happens now what and we may just read it on next week's show. So this week, I usually do at the end of the show, either a quote or an assignment or something like that. So you've got homework this week, listeners, um, and that's to read a new story. Um, if you don't have the budget to go out and purchase a book, I'm going to include a link to Feedbooks in the show notes, which has hundreds of public domain books that you can download to your, your, to your computer or your phone or your tablet and read for free. So no excuses. Read a new story and get a little escape from reality. Um, follow Shit Happens Now What on Facebook and on Twitter at SH Now What and subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and Stitcher. And I have an announcement. We are approved in the iTunes store. Finally, uh, they didn't mm -hmm. like the profanity in the title, but I was able to figure it out with them. So if you are on iTunes, try and subscribe, leave us a positive rating. We would have very much appreciate it. Thanks again to my guest, Katie, for joining me on this uh, on this topic. I really enjoyed our conversation. I would love to have you back another time if, you, uh, if you're game. That would be fantastic. I'd love to be in here virtually. 
Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you next week.